Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Hello and welcome back to Madison's Notes. I'm your host, Nino Scalia, and our guest today is Matt Pottinger. Matt Pottinger is a distinguished visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution and a senior advisor at the Marathon Initiative. He has served in a variety of important roles in the U.S. government, including most recently as Deputy National Security Advisor in the Trump administration. Before that, he served as the National Security Council's Senior Director for Asia. He spent the late 1990s and early 2000s in China as a reporter for Reuters and the Wall Street Journal, and then fought in Iraq and Afghanistan as a U.S. Marine during three combat deployments between 2007 and 2010. He also bears the very great distinction and shares this distinction with at least one other guest of the show of having been personally sanctioned by China, a high honor Indeed. Matt Pottinger, welcome to Madison's Notes. It's <laughs> good. Well, I, I don't know which was the other uh, guest, but but I think there's now more than a couple dozen of us. Um, so, so yeah, there's a, there's a pretty rich uh, um, group to pick from that, yeah. that have the honor and distinction of being sanctioned by uh, by the Chinese Communist Party. That's right. So, yeah. Nino, it's great to great to be with you. Now, um, before we turn to the big picture of U.S.-China relations, I, I'd like to talk about your time in China. As I mentioned there, you lived there for several years and you have experience in that country that that few others have. So what are your biggest takeaways from your time there? Yeah. So, you know, I was a student um, on an exchange program when I was in college in the early 90s uh, and and then went back to China to work as a journalist. So I I covered China for the Reuters news agency um, and then for several more years uh, for the Wall Street Journal and um, lived in Beijing and in, uh, in Hong Kong and briefly in Shanghai, uh, saw uh, uh, quite a lot of the country. And, and of course, this was late 90s until, until about uh, 2005, late 2005, I, I left uh, in order to join the Marine Corps, as you mentioned. Um, uh, working in China back in those days was a lot of fun. It was... Uh, it was this moment when it seemed as though China um, might uh, continue on the path of liberalization. It was a limited liberalization, but it was a liberalization of the economy that that was uh, permitted uh, by Deng Xiaoping and which continued under his uh, two immediate successors. And there was a, a sense of possibility in those days. You had a lot of uh, a lot of people moving from the countryside to the cities, a lot of people moving from the cities overseas uh, to study and work abroad. And there was a sense that, um, that uh, in fact, perhaps China would continue on that linear trajectory toward greater openness. Uh, and, and it was you know, bitterly disappointing um, uh, to, to find that that was, um, that was the wrong assumption <laughs> for us to have made and, uh, and, and you know, the Chinese Communist Party um, uh, decided to throw those reforms into reverse. Um, you know, they sort of stalled out during the Hu Jintao years after China got into the WTO. So all, all of the main reforms China uh, was going to make, it made 
as concessions in order to get into the WTO. Once it was in, it really stopped making any kinds of concessions or, or even to really uh, live up to the spirit or letter of some of the things that it had promised as a, as a precondition for coming into the World Trade Organization. So things started to stall out. And then once Xi Jinping came into power uh, a decade ago, uh, things went into reverse. And now we've seen really the, the sort of uh, the dashing of, of that, those hopes and that optimism that, that um, many Chinese had and, and uh, those of us who were visitors and observers and uh, reporters and businessmen who, who lived and worked in China, uh, our, our hopes were dashed as well. And, and we've seen the system really revert to sort of a pre-Deng Xiaoping um, uh, kind of model, uh, which is to say a dictatorship. So this is the what, right? You, you've just been detailing for us. A, it looks like we're going to see liberalization. Those reforms stall, then they halt, then they reverse. And for decades, as you mentioned, the bipartisan consensus was that China was on the path to democracy. There are lots of sources I could pull from here. I'll use then Governor George Bush on the campaign trail in 2000. Quote, trade with China will promote freedom. Freedom is not easily contained. Once a measure of economic freedom is permitted, a measure of political freedom will follow. He continued, trade freely with China and time is on our side. What happened? Yeah, you know, you're, you're reminding me because there's been a little bit of revisionism in, in recent days where you're hearing people who were really the architects of the old engagement strategy uh, now saying, well, we never really thought that they would liberalize. It was just something we were doing for, for, for uh, our own um, national interest and so forth. That, that, that's not true. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the, best, uh, the best compendium or record of, of how untrue that is, is actually Aaron Friedberg's uh, new book. Aaron Friedberg is, of course, um, uh, a uh, colleague of yours at, at Princeton University. That's right. Uh, he's written a book called "Getting China Wrong," hmm. and he really he 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 really revisits that history and the quote similar like like the one that you just read from President Bush, but going back even earlier to the Clinton administration and 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 those who believed that, in fact, um, our engagement strategy would um, would uh, compel China to liberalize. Um, and so, you know, and, and I don't, I don't, um, I, I don't ha have ill will for, uh, you know, for people who promoted that policy, uh, 20, 20 some odd years ago. Um, I, I was hopeful that they were right, you know, and I thought it was worth giving it a shot. What, what's, what's tougher to understand and abide are people who, uh, in the face of all Evidence to the contrary still believed yeah. that line, you know, as uh, as the Hu Jintao years turned into the Xi Jinping years, which turned into now what we're seeing, which is the Xi Jinping slash Vladimir Putin, um, you know, axis, which is now uh, fighting a war in Europe, a hot yeah. war in Europe. Uh, so um, you you've really got to uh, wonder about people who still think that that was um, uh, the right policy. All right, let's let's turn to the Xi Jinping years. Two questions for you. What does he want and what is he afraid of? Those are great questions, right? Uh, what, what Xi Jinping wants is for the United States to be irrelevant. It, it's, mm. it's a key part of his dream. It's, it's, uh, 
usually an unspoken uh, part, but not always unspoken. We, we saw in that 5,000 word pact that he signed with Vladimir Putin, the United States mentioned a half a dozen times in an extremely negative light. Um, he is now promoting both in, you know, in his phone call with President Biden on Friday and in their propaganda, the, the lie that the United States is the one that started the war in Ukraine, which is, you know, ludicrous and no one's buying that. Um, he is someone who views the United States as an obstacle to his broader vision and dreams. And therefore, he just wants the U.S. to kind of just fade away. Um, if, if, if you uh, are, are really uh, having trouble sleeping, you can, you can crack open Xi Jinping's uh, book on governance. Uh, the United States is barely even mentioned in it. He talks about Tanzania several times. You know, he talks about Chile and the importance of, uh, you know, uh, working together on, on uh, extracting minerals with South American uh, countries. And the United States just doesn't, doesn't, really, uh, uh, doesn't really appear. Uh, in in his in his uh, book because he doesn't want it to to be a factor anymore. Mm. Now, what's the thing that he fears more than anything else? He fears his own people mm. above all. It, it is the thing that that gives him night sweats, and that he started to talk about much more openly in his recent speeches is the idea of color revolution. It, mm. it, he tosses and turns in his bed at night, uh, soaking his pillow with with, uh, with sweat. Uh, this idea that my God, what if, what if my people really had a voice? What if they had a say? Um, what if my neighboring countries become more democratic on the whole? Uh, and so that's why when, when Kazakhstan had a bloody crackdown on, on, uh, on peaceful demonstrators uh, just recently, um, Xi Jinping was the first to, to give an a, a open note of personal congratulations to the leader there for, um, for massacring um, oh. hundreds of, uh, of, of Kazakh citizens uh, who had taken to the streets. And Xi Jinping talked about color revolutions explicitly in that context. He talks about it explicitly in the context of his pact with, with Vladimir Putin. And it's, it's something that keeps him up at night. The idea that people are in charge rather than a dictator or a single party is uh, his worst nightmare. Hmm. Uh, Taiwan. Can you set the stage here and tell us what we should know about the history of Taiwan and China? Yeah, so I mean, you've got um, um, a very brief history where Taiwan and China were were really part of the same entity uh, before uh, you know the twentieth century. Uh, there, there was you know Japan ended up uh, uh, colonizing Taiwan. Um, following uh, it, its defeat of the Qing dynasty uh, naval fleet. Um, it, uh, after uh, World War II, had a period of just uh, four years when it was part of the Republic of China um, until uh, the Civil War uh, ended with a communist victory in 1949 and, and the nationalist forces uh, at that point, uh, decamped uh, to Taiwan and made that the headquarters for the Republic of China. So you had these two competing uh, Chinas, one, one that in, you know, covered the entirety of the mainland and then the other that, that uh, covered Taiwan, but still held claim to the mainland. 
and that that sort of um, um, paradigm um, it, it continued on. Some would argue to the present day, but I think it really only continued on to the end of martial law in um, in Taiwan uh, in the late '80s, following. Uh, the, the the death of Chiang Kai-shek and then his son was in charge for several years and then ushered in a, a period of true democracy. And that, that true democ democracy really took flight in the mid nineties um, to the present day. You, you have the president of Taiwan elected freely every four years. Um, we've seen the opposition take power of, of um, what, what was traditionally the opposition take power of the, um, the, the presidency as well as the legislative yuan uh, and, and it's flipped back and forth uh, now several times. So you've got a, a, a tried and true democracy. And so it is still the Republic of China. Um, it, if you look at Republic of China maps, they still include, you know, uh, they still include mainland China and then some they include yeah. some other territory that, that, um, is is are now independent republics separate from China, like Mongolia. But um, um, but what Beijing has has said is that they will not renounce the use of force to uh, to bring Taiwan back uh, to under under the fold. The problem is the people of Taiwan are, are the ones who really have to have the say. You know, you have to have the consent of the people of Taiwan in order to have a legitimate uh, unification of Taiwan and um, and mainland China. And right now, the things that that Beijing does, the Chinese Communist Party does, makes uh, it less and less appetizing to any people anywhere to want to be yeah. part of China. You know, Hong Kong has uh, seen its rule of law and its uh, freedom of speech and all of the great institutions that it inherited and, and built upon um, in, in uh, the years since it ceased being a, a British colony. Uh, those have all been crushed. Uh, Beijing took unilateral action, uh, laid the plan in 2019 and then took action in 2020 to eliminate a high degree of autonomy in Hong Kong in violation of the Sino-British treaty that, uh, that was signed and, and registered at the UN. Um, Beijing doesn't keep its promises. It, yeah. it doesn't really yeah. view promises as uh, anything more than a, a tactic, not, not a principle to be upheld. So, um, so we're in a dangerous period now. We're in a period where, where Beijing uh, has become increasingly obsessed with the idea of eliminating uh, Taiwan as a, a democracy for the reasons we were just talking about. It gives them night sweats. Xi Jinping doesn't view Taiwan as a threat to China because it's not a threat to China. It's, it's yeah. only been helpful and beneficial to China, but he does view it as a threat to him personally mm. because he cannot abide democracies in Asia along his periphery because each democracy is a, is a, is a testament to um, the idea that people can govern themselves that you can have rule of law to which all, all men and women are subordinate. Those are dangerous ideas yeah. to a single party dictatorship. And it's especially a dangerous idea when the, when the successful democracy you're talking about happens to speak Mandarin yeah. as, as well as, uh, you know, Taiyu and, and other Chinese dialects and is made up of a lot of people who are ethnically Chinese mm -hmm. uh, who are doing quite well, uh, quite nicely. Thank you. They're, they've got, they've got a, 
a great Gini coefficient. You know, they, they, they've got uh, um, a, a very, a much better distribution of income, a more equitable distribution of income than mainland China has. They're more literate, they're more successful, they're wealthier, and they're happier because they're, they're, they're a free society. That is something that Xi Jinping cannot abide, which he's obsessed with destroying, and he's intent to do that. Drilling down on this, here's Xi Jinping speaking in 2021, quote, the historical task of the complete reunification of the motherland must be fulfilled and will definitely be fulfilled. He added that reunification through a peaceful manner is most in line with the overall interest of the Chinese nation. And yet, just a month after that address, if my, if my memory is right here, General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, was asked whether a military invasion of Taiwan was on the table. He warned that the Chinese are, quote, clearly and unambiguously building the capability to provide those options to the national leadership if they choose at some point in the near future, end quote. So what does this so-called reunification look like? Is it peaceful? It seems that's unlikely. Is it a full-scale military invasion or is it something in between? Yeah, so the, the quotes that you just quoted from Xi Jinping are not unlike uh, some of the things that Vladimir Putin wrote yeah. um, in, in the years and months leading up to his violent um, <clears throat> destructive campaign against Ukraine. And again, Ukraine never posed a threat to uh, Russia, but it did pose a threat. Its mere existence posed a threat to Vladimir Putin personally, um, because, uh, you know, an increasingly free and successful democracy uh, on his flank um, is something that, um, that, uh, that autocrats uh, cannot abide. Uh, and so uh, I take very seriously the statement of intent by, uh, by Xi Jinping, uh, which includes the quote that you just read. It also includes things he said along the lines of, this is not something I'm going to allow to be passed anymore from generation to generation. Yeah. You know, it's something that needs to be solved. He's also talked about the fact that his own Chinese dream, as he puts it, which is his sort of stock phrase for encapsulating his, his totalitarian vision for China and for, for, the, for the abroad, you know, the international scene, uh, cannot be achieved without Taiwan mm. uh, being annexed. So I take very seriously those statements of intent. I think we'd be crazy not to uh, take seriously those statements of intent. So, you, so you've, you've, we've now satisfied the troubling um, horizon in terms of expressions of intent by the Chinese dictator. Then what you have to look at are um, their capabilities. And as uh, you just quoted some of the things that General Milley said, which are certainly accurate, uh, Beijing is trying to put every last piece of the puzzle in place that would give it um, a, a highly, uh, you know, a high chance of succeeding if it, if it decides that it wants to um, uh, take military action against Taiwan or even to pursue a full-blown invasion. I think, I think that salami slicing, um, the way that Putin pursued back in 2014 and then in, in some of the subsequent steps he took against Ukraine is one possibility. Uh, but I think it's equally, if not more possible, that she is going to uh, pursue a full-blown uh, military assault and invasion of Taiwan and, and to view that as his best military play if he does decide to make the military play. 
because uh, he, he he's someone who there's a long tradition in in uh, in deception and the, and the element of strategic surprise in Chinese statecraft and its military statecraft. Um, I, I think that um, if you know if China were to salami slice its way forward, that would only give Taiwan and the international community time to, to respond in ways that um, would would uh, stiffen our resolve and, and, and raise the costs for Beijing were it to uh, uh, to continue down that track. So I think it's I think there's a, a high possibility that if he chooses military action, he will choose to go all the way. What is she thinking as he watches the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine? Is he realizing an invasion of Taiwan would be easier than he thought, more difficult? Yeah, you know, it's obvious that both he and Vladimir Putin made a grave miscalculation Mm. in assuming that the the, the fight for Kiev would be easy. Uh, it's, It's quite obvious. It's obvious to the world. It's obvious to the military planners sitting in Beijing and in their various uh, combatant command headquarters, you know, planning, planning uh, war plans for Taiwan. Uh, It's obvious to them that um, the the bosses um, uh, really, really misjudged the situation. Um, That doesn't mean that they won't misjudge again. That's what dictators do. They make all sorts of misjudgments. (laughs) The longer they stay in power, the more inclined they are to make misjudgments Mm. because they get worse and worse flows of, uh, of accurate and, and balanced information. Uh, and they also they start to think in terms of, um, gee, I've, uh, you know, I've, I've spent my whole life uh, amassing the power that I now have amassed. I, I've spent, we've spent decades accumulating the military capability that we've now amassed. I, I better use it or I'm going to lose it. That kind of mentality tends to seize um, the Vladimir Putins and Xi Jinping's of the world. Uh, which is why I don't think that we should uh, assume that just because uh, Putin has proved himself to be a completely inept uh, military uh, thinker that uh, Xi Jinping won't be equally inept. Several weeks ago, Russia and China released a nearly 6,000 word joint statement in which they declared there were no limits to their friendship. This was further fuel on the fire for those who see in Russia and China a new axis of tyranny, and cold rain for those who hoped Russia might ultimately ally herself with the West against China. In an interview you gave to the Wall Street Journal recently, no doubt done in preparation for our conversation, uh, you said the following, quote, I think that the logic of national interest will eventually reassert itself over the interests of two dictators who drew up this pact. That'll take time to play out, but I think in many respects, it'll be only downhill from here between Moscow and Beijing. Why? Yeah, uh, there's, there's no question that the, this pact, um, this new block that Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin have declared in that uh, communique that you just described is a, is a personally driven top-down yeah. uh, um, trend and action. It is not something that was naturally um, the, the, the natural result of, um, of convergent national interests between Russia and China. 
this is dictator to dictator. It's not nation state to nation state. Um, I, I've, I've known enough Chinese career diplomats over the course of my time in journalism and in government to know that, that they are contorting themselves uh, to try to justify on any grounds uh, the idea that, that China is now underwriting a war against a sovereign state in Europe. <laughs> there's, there's no way to square that circle um, uh, through logic or, or, through, um, or, or, or through any, any meditation on the true national interest of, uh, of, of China or even Russia. So uh, what you have is a dictator to, di to dictator love letter um, between those two guys. And this was driven by Xi, uh, more even than it was driven by Vladimir Putin. You know, when Xi Jinping came to power a decade ago, uh, he 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 showed that that you know Vladimir Putin had famously said that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the worst catastrophe of the 20th century. What Xi Jinping showed was that he agrees with that statement. <laughs> he, he gave a speech um, in 2012 within within weeks of coming into power uh, that got leaked. The portions of that speech were leaked where he said um, it was a catastrophe, mm. uh, that, that, that we need to learn from what happened to the Soviet Communist Party and the Soviet Union. People weren't man enough to stand up for um, uh, you know, Vladimir Lenin and for Joseph Stalin. He, he mentioned those two leaders in particular. Mm. Those are, you know, Stalin is really the spirit animal of Xi Jinping. And so, so he's obsessed with this stuff. He's obsessed with the collapse of the Soviet Union. He made his first trip abroad to Russia, where he boasted to, to Vladimir Putin about all the Soviet era books that he had read, <laughs> as well as some literary classics from Russian literature that predated the Bolshevik revolution. But a lot of it was, you know, the, the kind of stuff that uh, kids were forced to read growing up in, in uh, Stalinist Russia and Maoist China. So uh, th this stuff stuck, you know, no. she, she is, is a creature of that, of that era. And, uh, um, uh, you know, for, for, to, to the detriment of the interests of the Chinese people and, and people uh, around the world. We increasingly hear strategists and leaders of our foreign policy say we should pivot to China, that Asia is the future and Europe is the past. It is China that poses the biggest threat to the United States and to the free world. Our resources are finite. They need to be devoted somewhere. They should be devoted here. I'm quoting you again from that journal interview, quote, the war in Ukraine underscores why we cannot compartmentalize our Cold War to a specific geography or even to a specific player, end quote. Can you walk us through how you're thinking about these calls for a pivot to China? Yeah, sure. I mean, <clears throat> the, the term the pivot uh, to China really originates with the first term of President Obama when Hillary Clinton was, uh, <clears throat> was Secretary of State uh, and she brought on board uh, Kurt Campbell, who's now at the White House, uh, but he was our uh, you know, Assistant Secretary of State in those days. And I think, I think that the, uh, you know, they would give a better explanation th than I can, but, but I, I think that there was a, a worthy objective in using the term uh, rebalancing or pivot, they use both of those terms, to describe a policy which was really designed to underscore the fact that Asia, uh, East Asia, and now what we call the Indo-Pacific region, are really the center 
of economic activity, human activity. It's where most of the people of the world are. Um, it's where the, you have a relatively young demographic in Southeast Asia. Um, uh, I really think of Southeast Asia as the, as the geographic and conceptual center for the Indo-Pacific. It's maritime, it's young, it's, it's pluralistic, um, multicultural, uh, and just a really interesting part of the world. The idea of, of the, the pivot or the rebalancing was to say, look, our future as an American um, republic with, with ties going back to the late 18th century, ties going back to Asia, our future is very much tied to the future of the Indo-Pacific region. And therefore we need to act like it. <clears throat> our diplomacy, our, our foreign aid, our trade and investment, and certainly our military uh, capabilities need to reflect the fact that Asia uh, writ large, but particularly the Indo-Pacific region and that conception of it um, is of vital national interest to us. And we're part of it. We are a Pacific power. We're a maritime Pacific power. We have been since George Washington uh, was the, our president. And, and so that was the right um, objective. Now, um, uh, the, if you look today um, at, you know, the comment that you just read uh, from me from my interview the other day, th that is not mutually exclusive with that broader objective that I just, just mentioned. I, I do think that those who argue that our top priority adversary is China, and that in addition to that, the, the region that will have the greatest sort of uh, um, uh, impact on our fate uh, as, as, a, as, a, as a superpower uh, on our national security, on our prosperity and freedom. Uh, those who say that, that, um, that uh, we need to prioritize that region with China as the chief adversary and, and the region broadly as, as the most important center of action in the world are correct. <laughs> so, and, and to that extent, we do have to have priorities. You can't really have a strategy <clears throat> if you don't have priorities. Yeah. The problem is um, China is now working uh, hand in glove with Vladimir Putin, with mm -hmm. Putin as the, his, the junior partner. They're, those two are working hand in glove with the Ayatollah in Iran, with, uh, with the Ayatollah is even the dinkier junior partner in that <laughs> triumvirate. And then you've got other autocratic um, uh, uh, states or, or dictators um, that that you know want to uh, suction cup themselves to to this uh, new block, whether it's you know the Maduro regime um, to 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 a more to a complicated extent uh, Kim Jong Un as well. Though that, that there there's some footnotes that that go with the very strange relationship between North Korea and China. Yeah. But so th what that means is that. The problems that are created by, for example, Iran in the Middle East are things that will undermine our national security and prosperity and interests and destabilize a region in ways that force us to overcompensate mm. um, by going back more heavily into, the, into those regions um, if, if we turn our backs on those regions. So we've got to be much smarter and more deft in our in our approach to those regions. We've got to, we've got to hold our friends closer than ever mm. uh, in those regions, which is why it's and so counterproductive to see the Biden administration hugging. Uh, in fact, they can't even, they want to hug the Ayatollah, but the Ayatollah won't even meet with American diplomats. So we're just blowing him kisses and sending him Valentines with goodies. <laughs> and, 
um, just to show how ardently we, we, we uh, are fans, um, uh, when we should be hugging close Israel, we should be hugging close United Arab Emirates and Qatar and the Saudi, uh, uh, the Saudi regime, um, among others, right? Those are, those are our partners in the region. Yeah. And, uh, and it's in our interest to ensure that they remain good partners in that region. Um, and uh, by, by turning our backs on them and, and emphasizing engagement with our adversaries, we are actually undermining our ability to prioritize mm. China as, as, the, as, as the chief uh, challenge. Yeah. We're almost out of time here, so I'm going to exercise some restraint and ask just a final question, bringing the conversation back to our shores. As you think about the future, what do you believe the U.S. should be doing to confront China economically, diplomatically, and militarily? Yeah, so the first step is to, is to have courage, uh, the courage of our convictions and, and re- remind ourselves of why it is that we uh, were victorious in the first Cold War, because the lessons uh, the, therein are relevant to how, how and why we uh, will be uh, successful and victorious in the second Cold War, which is not a Cold War we declared, by the way. Yeah. It's not one that we sought or or even particularly want. Right. Uh, the protagonists in the story so far are Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin. They're the ones who are, are waging a Cold War uh, against the West. Uh, and so uh, the first thing we need to do is uh, re- remember the things that unify us at home. Um, uh, try to shed some of the, the zaniness of, of our domestic politics at this moment, where you've got uh, ideas uh, that are pretty extreme on the far right, and you've got ideas and extreme that are on the far left. And those ideas have crept towards the center in a way where, where you know, we're, we're having to contend with this stuff day in and day out. Uh, most Americans um, uh, uh, love this country and they yeah. love um, the opportunities that it's provided them. And there's a reason that people are, are trying to break down the doors to get into this country still today. So first of all, let's, let's, let, let's double down on the things that made this country great, which is uh, love and respect for the dignity of individuals. It's the rule of law. Uh, it is certainly free enterprise uh, and democracy. Um, you know, there are days when it feels like the Democratic Party has lost its faith in, in capitalism and, and the Republican Party is losing its faith in democracy. We got we to gotta, we gotta just uh, shake that off. Uh, well, like we have in the past, we've had moments like this before. Uh, some people think of the, the, the 60s and early 70s. I, I, think, I think it's a lot like the 1930s right now when, when Americans had, were, really had their faith shaken during the... Uh, 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 d- during the Great Depression, had their faith shaken and all the things that have made us a great success and will continue to, we just got to shake it off. We got to get real. Uh, we, we, we have to use the opportunity of, of, uh, of, of a very difficult competition that's being waged against us by dictators um, to uh, pull our socks up and, uh, and, and just beat them. Let's beat their asses, okay? Because we can. We can beat them in, in, uh, in any realm where they want to take this fight. Hopefully it won't be a military fight Um, uh, uh, and that we're able to constrain it to the technological and ideological informational uh, sort of realms. Uh, But, um, but we can't just, we just can't sit it out. This is, this is about uh, our existence and and our way of life. So I'd say that 
you know, all, all those different uh, sort of uh, avenues of, of competition you mentioned, the, 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 the foundation for all of them is unity at home. Absolutely. No, that, that's a wonderful place to end, Matt. I know you're absolutely slammed right now. And so we'll let you get on with your day. Thank you so much for joining us today on Madison's Notes. Oh, it was my pleasure. It's great to be with you, Nino. Well, there you have it, folks. The great Matt Pottinger on China, Russia, ideological competition, and us. You can find a link in the show notes to Matt's recent interview with the Wall Street Journal, as well as a link to his webpage with the Hoover Institution, where you can read some more of his work. And if you've been enjoying Madison's notes, I ask that you please take a moment to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes and tell your family and friends about the show. That's it for today. Thank you for joining us, and I hope to have you back with us next time, here on Madison's Notes.